Hey, good morning, everyone, and uh, wonderful to see you, wonderful to be here, wonderful to be able to bring um, a continuation of our series as we're looking through this issue with respect to our final authority, with respect to the Bible and the Bible itself. And as we continue on through this series, we're discovering more and more things are unravelling here where we're coming to understand that all is not as it seems with regards to this multiplicity of Bible versions that we see within the world today. We're starting to see a little bit of depth now, a little bit more three-dimensionally rather than just the two-dimensional image that we're usually presented with by people who would testify and defend the idea that we don't have the Word of God today. And they don't say that, obviously. They, they say that we have the Word of God. But in the end, in very practice, they deny it. This topic this morning, or the subject, this, the title this morning, is the protest of truth. The protest of truth. Last week we had the proclamation of truth. This week, the protest of truth. Next week, maybe not next week, because I've got something else in mind for next week, but the next one will be the prohibition of truth. In that one there, we'll discover how there was such an active effort within the world to put away the Word of God, to absolutely hide it. We're going to get a taste of that today. We're going to be looking at a few different things this morning, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. As we go through this excursion, you can see something very interesting from the text that we had a look at this morning, and that is that from the very beginning, Satan had desired to create doubt in the Word of God. There's a question that he asks. Anybody remember the question? Hath God said? Hath God said? It's the very first time we, we see the devil open his mouth, and it's the very first question that we have within the Bible, and its attack immediately is on the veracity of the Word of God, to create doubt in what God had said. We're going to be discovering that his tactic hasn't changed. It's continued on down through the ages. We're now in a point where once it was hidden and locked away in a foreign language, today it's hidden in obscurity. It's like a needle in a haystack trying to find where the Word of God actually is. From Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, and that is from the first prophet unto the last prophet, Satan has been working in the hearts of men to protest the Word of God coming to the people, essentially to protest the truth, to take away the truth. And all of the prophets preached with certainty. They all preached with conviction of heart. They knew it was the Word of God that they were preaching and that they were telling the people. And God was holding the people accountable to be able to identify that they were actually preaching the Word of God. As you read the Scriptures, you see that. They were held accountable to know and to distinct, uh, to have that distinction and understanding between what is the Word of God and what is not. But there seems to be a natural inclination in man to do whatever it is that he desires to do. A desire that stems from the most ancient of history and it seems that we've all inherited this natural inclination. You see that from Eve right at the beginning. This natural inclination that we have is that we want to believe whatever it is we want to believe, even if what we want to believe is not actually true. We're more than happy for people to lie to us as long as it's what we want to know. You ever notice that? You ever realise that you might be the subject of that? 
So incredible to see this, but this is not unusual. Self-deception is one of the single most common maladies in all people. And it's a curse that only humility can relieve us from. Reality will always have its day. It'll always have its day. Isaiah wrote this. He said, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell are we in agreement When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. And people have done that. They've hid themselves into this denial that reality isn't actually real. That's what's going on within the world, what's going on around them. It's not going to affect them. It's not going to come upon them. You know, somehow they're going to be able to escape it. Somehow they will lie to themselves in order to give themselves a false sense of comfort. This is the reality of modern man today, yet that was written nearly nearly 3,000 years ago. It's almost like man hasn't changed. Do you think that man's changed? I don't think man's changed. I've read Plato. I've read Aristotle. You read Cicero. You read these individuals who have been writing since... 2,000 plus years ago, and it's like reading a modern day work. You read Marcus Aurelius, exactly the same. It's like reading today. The behaviour of people back then is the same as today. So much for the whole thing that, oh, that's just an old book, we've moved on from that. Time has changed, things have changed. No, man has not fundamentally changed. Man is exactly the same, especially without God. We see in the Bible today about the nature of man that has not changed. You want to consider this one. I'll get you to turn to this one. Turn to Isaiah. We've got two passages in Isaiah I want you to have a look at. These are, these are really interesting. Isaiah chapter 47 and verse 13. As always, or as most times, the notes are in your, the scripture references are in your newsletters. Isaiah chapter 47. You can go to the middle of your Bibles and just turn right and you'll come across Isaiah. It's a fairly large book. Isaiah 47, verse 13. Speaking to the people of Israel and how they turn away from God and they turn towards everything else apart from God. It's a classic. Tell me if this doesn't uh, ring true for you today. Isaiah 47 verse 13, Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. You know, we see this. We look at magazines and there's always these monthly prognostications. You know, you open newspapers and you look to your particular star sign and that tells you what this week is going to be like. And all these different proclamations, all these different ideas that you turn to, these are forms of idolatry, obviously. You're looking for that which you personally prefer to turn to. Anything that will, you know, scratch your ears, that will, that will give you this, the warm and fuzzies. And Isaiah's meeting that right there. These things are vanity, however, because reality will still come upon them. Jonah wrote, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Turn to another passage, just for fun. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 30. Again, speaking of Israel. And the Lord wanting to address them personally. 
and see if this is not exactly today. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 9 and 10 here writes there that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Do you find that fascinating? Don't, don't tell us what we need to hear. Tell us what we want to hear. Lie to me. Lie to me. Tell me I'm better than what I actually am. Tell me that I'm really handsome. Tell me that I'm really effective. Tell me that I'm really this or really that. It's called self-edification classes. If you've ever heard of those, that's a perfect picture of Isaiah here. The protest of truth is the devil's work from the very beginning to this day. And it's there to create doubt in the word of God and to directly question it, then to deny it until he can corrupt it and then ultimately replace it. It's the thin end of the wedge, but the program is always the same. First doubt, then question, then corrupt, then replace or deny, corrupt and then replace. And we'll talk about replacing it in a special sermon called the permutation of truth the seventh message in the series man seems however to be naturally predisposed to it we seem to be naturally predisposed it's almost like we need something to wake us out of that dreary sleep that we find ourselves in to wake us up we proudly turn ourselves away from the truth only wanting to believe the things that we want to believe we we create our own idol of quasi-religious ideas that will suit me that's what that's my truth we even change the definition of words to make sure that nobody questions what it is that we want to believe proverbs twenty six sixteen says the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men who can render a reason the vain man is a lazy man or woman the, so just need you to understand that the Male pronoun has historically always included women, okay? I just don't want any of the ladies to feel left out, that's all. This is the vain individual that wants to believe only what they want to believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning. and That you would help us to glean the wonderful things that are found within the Scriptures But also, dear Lord, that we would come to an understanding and a knowledge that you have provided a certainty for us. You have provided the absolute truth that we need to hold on to. And I pray, dear Father, that you would be with us. We thank you for these things and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. The doubt of truth. We're going to have these four points this morning. The first and the last are fairly lengthy. The two in the middle are relatively short but they will still wrap up at the same time. The doubt of truth. Have a look in your text there in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says there, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, in verse 1, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice the question. Hath God said... Interesting that we find that it's the first time he spoke. Interesting that it's a question. Interesting also that it's there designed to create doubt in the word of God. 
It's the thin end of the wedge and it was directed specifically at Eve at this time. This is the very first protest of truth. Hath God said? It's the single most effective way to destroy your faith, to just question it, just question it, just to create the doubt. That's all he needs to do. Notice how it enters in and it enters in very, very subtly. And he is a subtle individual. The serpent said unto the woman, until he virtually denies it, and he says to the woman, you shall not surely die. So he begins with the doubt created in the second verse, and he continues then from that point by the fourth verse to deny God's word altogether. Ye shall not surely die. Until ultimately by the fifth verse, Satan is providing an alternative faith. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. To this very day, people believe themselves to be gods. They believe that you have your own godhood, that we are little gods or that we, have our, we are gods in and of ourselves. There are some who say that our job is to go out there and to let everybody know that they are gods, to remind them that they are gods. Don't you think it's really unusual that you're omniscient but you never knew it? All-knowing but never knew it. That's, I find that curious. If such a device of the devil was so incredibly effective at the beginning... Why would we think that he would not continue it on to this very day? Why would we think that he would not continue that same device? Remember, the aim here is only to create doubt, to raise a flag of protest. Once that doubt and any certainty is accepted, then and only then can you begin that transition process to replace it. This is exactly what's happening in the world today. Why do you think we move from one version of the Bible to 400 versions of the Bible. Do you know why? Ultimately, to go back to one version of the Bible. But it's not going to be the Bible. It's going to be that book that the beast desires to make sure that everybody knows. His own special version of Mao's Little Red Book. It's going to be the world's idea of this final world religious system. All these are going to be made illegal. And that's something that you may not be aware of, but that's certainly on the cards. Here we have, in speaking with regards to the certainty of the authorised version of the Bible, the King James Version, that's blessed the English-speaking world at this particular point in time, this quote that I'm going to read you for 200 years, this journal says this, We do not make such remarks with a view to blame the translators, but to guard men against the superstitious notion that our English version is perfect. A perfect translation needs not to be expected by imperfect men. This is the Expositor and Universalist Review, Boston, 1834. The statement here in 1834 is to create doubt. That's its purpose. The truth has to be questioned, then denied, then corrupted, and then replaced. And it did get replaced 47 years later by the revised version of the Bible. And that effort began an avalanche of versions. Now, I just want you to think of something for a minute. Think logically about this. If we all believe that an imperfect translation is all that we can expect through imperfect men, can we ever have a perfect translation? 
Think about it. If all we believe is that an imperfect translation is all we can expect from imperfect men, could we ever expect to see a perfect translation? No. What would that then tell you about the potential of translations? When will they stop? Never. They'll never stop. They'll continue on and on and on. There is an infinite potential amount of translations. And this was understood very early on. In 1832, the banner of the church wrote this. If alterations of the received version once commence, where will they end? Where will they end? The reception of the authorised version of the Bible by the whole Christian community, wherever the English language is spoken, is a blessing the value of which cannot be estimated and the loss of which would be one of the heaviest curses which could befall the Church of Christ. If one substitution be made, another may be. And the Bible, by this impious transmutation, become, after a few successive changes, the book of man and not the book of God. Banner of the Church, 1832. When it becomes the book of man, it's lost all semblance of certainty. And this is really tragic because I actually spoke recently to a man who does not want to believe the Christian faith because the Bible is a book of man. Is he right? 400 to 1, he's right. 400 to 1, he's right. Every single time that there's a corruption of the Word of God, every single time that there's another version of the Bible, you can't help but think this is a book of man, not a book of God. All that needs to begin that process is doubt in what you have. So every single time a pastor says that there's an error here or the proper word is or anything of, this, of such kind like that, he is creating doubt in what you have in your hands. And the book of God becomes the book of man not long after. But the idea that a perfect Bible cannot be expected by imperfect men actually denies the very inspiration of the Bible to begin with. Let me ask you a question. Did God inspire the word of God through perfect men? The Bible does say holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, but they suffered like passions as we do. They struggled with sin just as we do. They were holy at the time when there was the writing of the word of the living God. They were not perfect men. None were perfect. Paul testifies to that himself. There's none perfect. Jesus testifies to that himself. He says there's none good but one, and that is God. Okay, so if that's the case, that God actually worked through imperfect men to give us the perfect word of God, does it not stand also to reason that he could use imperfect men to both copy and translate the word of God? If it's God's work to preserve the scriptures and not man's, then we need not concern ourselves with the idea of imperfect men translating the word of God. They believe that from the beginning. There's examples of these corruptions within the scriptures. They say that truth is the first casualty of war, but it seems certainty is the first casualty of doubt. Consider this quotation by Samuel Davidson. He was an acclaimed Bible scholar in 1873. Revisions at moderate intervals of 50 years will keep alive the idea of man's limited acquaintance with the original scriptures in all the fullness of their meaning and prevent superstitious attachment to the letter. Whatever checks bibliolatry is good 
and profitable. Samuel Davidson, on a fresh revision of the English Old Testament, 1873. Did you hear what he said? Regular intervals of at least 50 years. What we want is we want regular intervals of new revisions of the Bible every 50 years. Why? To stop you from believing that you actually have the truth within your hands. As long as we do that every single 50 years, it'll stop people from believing that they actually have the perfect word of God within their hands. Can you, you thought the idea of these revisions of the Bible was to give us a more perfect translations, did you not? Obviously it's not. That's not the goal here. This is crazy stuff. But he also distorts the whole view of idolatry. Notice he uses the word bibliolatry. In other words, the idea that we hold to one version of the Bible in spite of our preference is called bibliolatry. In other words, it's a form of idolatry. But that's not what idolatry is, beloved. That does not define idolatry. It's not idolatry believing one book, one God, one saviour, one way of salvation in spite of our personal preferences. Idolatry is picking and choosing which book, which God, which saviour, which way of salvation suits your personal preference. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. He completely inverts this. Here's another quotation a few years earlier. This translation, in other words, the American Unitarian Association's translation, is a decided help in the great battle against bibliolatry and the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Every new version, get this, every new version, even if it be not so good as this, aids in overthrowing the power of the paper pope, which has ruled Protestantism with a rod of iron. That is, the King James Version of the Bible. Their desire is to overthrow the King James Version of the Bible. No book, no Bible has ever suffered this form of attack, except for the authorised version of the Bible. Removing certainty. Let me give you a few examples. Removing certainty. Acts 1.3. To whom he, show, he also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Many infallible proofs. The NIV and the NASB continue to change that to convincing proofs. The ESV just says proofs. The Good News Bible says beyond doubt. The New Living Translation proved in many ways. The message in many different settings. Changed infallible proofs to those that are not quite as certain. I mean infallible proofs. But that is as certain as you can get. And these modern translations have changed that. Certainty is removed. The more absolute infallible proofs is moved to that which is more uncertain. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-one, That I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth. The NIV says, teaching you to be honest and to speak the truth. The New Living Translation says, in this way you may know the truth. The Good News Bible, and will teach you what the truth really is. The ESV, and to make you know what is right and true. And the message, believe me, these are truths at work. Again, changing that I make, make thee know the certainty of the words of truth. Certainty is now removed from modern translations and that which is a little, a lot less demoted is what's replaced. 2 Timothy 3.14 But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, 
assured of is being changed to become convinced of in the NIV and the NASB, that that know that they are true in the New Living Translation, that you firmly believe in the Good News Bible and the ESV and simply believed in the message. Assured of turned to believed. Assured of says a lot more than simply being convinced of. Assured of. Second Peter 1.19. This is a great one. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Where unto ye do well that ye take heed. The NIV changes that to we also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable and you would do well to pay attention to it. Therein, uh, the sure word has merely become a reliable something. A reliable something. These are transmutations of the word of God which takes away certainty from your hands and makes it unsure. Can you understand why most people will say, well, you can't really know that and no one really knows. And you know, there's three or four different schools of thought on that. Why? Because there's no assurance. There's no certainty. There's no hook that you could hold yourself onto and say, this is true. This is the reason why people don't like anybody that speaks in terms that are simply black and white. Notice that? They love their shades of grey, don't they? They love them all. They're not, they're not akin to disposing of any of them. Matter of fact, one, one wife of a pastor said, I used to think everything was black and white, but now she fluffs it all up and said, but the world is colour. You know? So there is no truth. Everything is whatever you feel like it to be. Hell is diluted in the New King James Version until it is almost lost in modern versions. Hell makes no appearance in the Old Testament, in the NIV, the ESV, the Bad News Bible, the NASB, etc. It's found 54 times in the Bible, but only 14 times in the ESV, 13 times in the NIV, and zero. Not even once in Young's literal translation. The doubt of Jesus as God is, in a number of different passages, is being diluted to the point of not really sure that they're there. The doubt of salvation, transforming it from a process, transforming it into a process rather than a one-time event that occurs within your life. Doubt of the Godhead, the Trinity, has been deceitfully removed in 1 John 5, 7. Doubt even about something as simple as who killed Goliath. Who killed Goliath? Well, I don't know. If you read the modern translation in 2 Samuel 21, 19, it seems to be completely different to who killed him in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. I don't know. Who killed Goliath? I thought it was David. You know. Anyway, such a lack of clarity, it should surprise that so few people in the church, uh, so few people, shouldn't surprise us with such a lack of clarity that the church is in the state that it is in today. Shouldn't surprise us at all. Question of truth. In Genesis 3.6 is our second point, a very short one. When doubt is successfully created in the mind, it is the most natural response in the world to consider an alternative proposed. Right? First, the doubt needs to be created. Then the questioning of it comes. Question of whether that doubt is justly placed. 
you start looking then, you start making alternative inquiries into something else. There's the test of the heart here. The woman believed that she had the right to examine the tree and its forbidden fruit only when the truth of God's word was put into question and then denied. And verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. The Apostle John wrote this, 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Incredibly, the origin of all that is in the world is seen right here in our text in Genesis 3.6. Have a look at it and consider it. The lust of the flesh. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes and that it was pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Do you find that curious? I don't find it surprising that if all that is in the world had its origin at the fall of man in the garden right at the beginning. The lust of the eyes, the, 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 the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. This is where the questioning begins. And then it leads to automatically to the denial of the truth. Genesis 3, 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. This third point, the doubt of truth is created, the next step is its denial. When doubt is created and established in the Bible, the next step is the practical denial of his words. No longer do you read the Bible the same way. Now everything is in question. Now you're looking at a particular word and you're looking at it and thinking, hmm, should that be there? I wonder what another word would be considered. What does this really mean? You pick up another translation, thinking that it's going to be making it clearer, thinking, hmm, yeah, don't like that one. Pick up another translation, see if that one makes it clearer. Yeah, I don't really like that one either. So you pick up another translation, see if that makes it any clearer, and then finally you end up in a lexicon, and there's 46 of those. So then you go through which one you prefer, and eventually you have the complete denial of the truth that was there to begin with. Let me share a story of an example of the protest of truth that led to its ultimate denial. The story is told of a man who had long been going to church faithfully since he was young. He'd always had the same pastor and one day he was suddenly taken ill and found himself in hospital. His pastor came to see him and to comfort him. And while he was there talking to the man, the pastor asked if he had his Bible with him to comfort him. And the man pointed to the chair. And the pastor pulled out a fragmented book that turned out to be the man's Bible. On the cover, the words Holy Bible was embossed in gold. But when the pastor opened the Bible, he saw all these words crossed out. Some verses literally cut out. Other words penned in. Even some pages of the Bible torn out. Confused about what he held in his hands, he asked the man what he had done to his Bible. And the man responded, Well, Pastor, every time you told us a word was wrong, I just crossed it out. And when you told us what it should be, I just penned it in. When you said that the verse itself was probably added, I just cut it out. 
And when you told us about the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel, I just tore out the page. Now I think I have a perfect Bible, but I don't know if I'll make it to church this Sunday to see if you don't correct something else. This is what pastors do every time they create doubt in the word of God. They deny its truth. They deny you the possession of that which is the most precious thing in the world. They deny the word of God. You no longer have an anchor. You no longer have an anchor for your soul. You no longer have something that you can hold to, that you can look to, and that you could find the wonderful truth of God. It's gone. And it's gone simply because they have taken it away. They've distorted it. They've denied it. How many pastors would be guilty of this act? Revelation twenty-two nineteen says, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. How many are guilty of doing this? Now it stands to reason, does it not, that for anybody to be able to take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, it stands to reason that the words must be there to begin with. You can't take away what's not there, can you? Is this the reason why we've got 779,000 English words in this book, but when you pick up the NIV, it's down 69,000 words? Yet it's a wordier volume. It's incredible. The corruption of the truth. The corruption of the truth. Last point this morning. It's a lengthy one, this one, but it'll still finish good. Bible colleges and cemeteries, sorry, seminaries. I often get confused because that's where you go for faith to die. Anyway, seminaries, Bible colleges and seminaries. Let me start again are the single consolidated entities that have so roundly corrupted the churches through which they had sent their students to pastor. That is self-evident. That is self-evident. The work of the gospel of Christ, the revivals began by individuals who were not necessarily the products of these Bible colleges and seminaries. And the reason why is because there are no Bible colleges in the Bible. There are no seminaries in the Bible. You can look through scripture and nowhere will you find anything resembling the emphasis on schools for pastors as you do in the world this day. Absolutely true. Every single Bible college is an affront to the scriptures. It's not there for the purpose of bringing out the word of God. Ultimately, its purpose will be to destroy the faith of those who come. Why? Because it's not in the scriptures. This isn't in your newsletter, so write it down. I'm going to give you all the references, all of them, every single one of them, so you're going to have to have spend some time writing. All the references to a Bible college or a school in the Bible, okay? If you've got a pen, write these down. 2 Kings 22 verse 14. 2 Kings 22 verse 14. These, these verses are used to justify the existence of Bible colleges. 2 Kings 22, verse 14. The next one, I don't know how much time we've got, but next one, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 22. And the last one, 
Acts 19 verse 9. Second one was 2 Chronicles 34 verse 22. And the last one was Acts 19 verse 9. That's all. That's it. The first two are mentioned in a parenthesis. And the last one is just a location reference. It was in the school of Tyrannus. Oh, I was being a little bit facetious, but, you know, but, but worth, you've got to go in there and study it. No, seriously, because I want you to have a look at the context. I want you to have a look and, and bring out, I want you to see if you can bring out from those texts that every single individual can only have the right to pastor a church if he has gone to a Bible college. I want you to see within those texts if there is any emphasis that we place on the importance of Bible colleges today in those texts, okay? Have a look at the context, read it for yourself. If you can bring out to justify the emphasis that Christianity has with Bible colleges today, then, mate, I pray Godspeed. God bless you. Just do the best you can. Bible colleges are the first place where corruption begins. And the first class where that corruption has its perfect work is the Greek class. The protest of truth enters now into its last phase prior to its replacement. This is where the corruption begins. It's in the Greek class. When you enter into a Greek class in a Bible college, and two years of Greek is usually what's minimally required for you to get your diploma... The first thing that is attended to is the beginning, at the beginning of every single class is an example on why you need Greek. All right? This is my experience and I've found out that this is the experience of everybody. Every single time you go to a Greek class, at the beginning of every Greek class are examples of why you need Greek. If you didn't have Greek, then you didn't know the Bible properly. The English translation is okay for the plebeians and the pews, but the preacher needs to move towards a more elevated position, beyond the reach of the plebs. Elitism seems to be the effect on the seminary student as he eyes, as his eyes look to the prize of one day being above reproach. You see, once you've got that secret knowledge, haha, once you've got that secret knowledge, that special secret knowledge that nobody else has because you know Greek, once you know Greek, Anybody who asks you a question and says, Pastor, you said this, but the Bible says this. And you can say, ah, but the Greek says. And therefore, you're out of the picture. You're out of the firing line. They can't question you anymore. They just need to sit there. They need to take their brains out and they need to just listen to the man behind the pulpit. You cannot be questioned. If you thought you had all you needed in English... In an English translation of the Bible, the Greek teacher will soon provide you more than enough doubt to have you question what you have once believed. And let me give you just one example, and some of you might have been recipients of this example. Let me give you one. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. I could give you hundreds, but this is one of the most popular ones, and I'll be surprised if any of you don't know it. Well, if you've been around for any length of time, you would know this one. John, chapter 21. Verses 15 to 17, we're going to look at. We've got some time, good. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. 
So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my lambs. In verse 16, so we're in John 21, verse 16. And he saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. The passage seems straightforward to anybody who would read it. Peter previously denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. And Jesus now gives him an opportunity to confirm his love for him three times. It's evidently why Peter was grieved the third time. It was almost like the third time rang the bell for him. The third time reminded him of his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ three times. The third time brought that grief directly into his heart. Jesus wanting that conviction to have its place, that Peter himself may be redeemed. A wonderful message, a simple message, and anybody that has read their Bible through would have picked it up. Because the denial of the Lord Jesus Christ actually appears in all four of the Gospel accounts. Not one of them, not two of them, not just the three synoptic Gospels, but all four of them. It's almost as Peter wanted everybody to know that he denied his Lord and his Saviour. Not so, not so, says the first year Greek student pastor teacher. No, 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 no. You need to learn something completely different. Now we're going to be entering into that realm of secret knowledge, that that Christian Gnosticism that's going to be coming about so you can focus on the man who is enlightened. I'm being facetious, I'm sorry, but I'm doing it deliberately. And it's a reason for it, because I hate this stuff, to be honest. According to this unresearched genius who believes everything that he's taught without question, the word Jesus used for love in the Greek the first two times and the word Peter uses for love are different words meaning different things. And indeed, so it is. When you look at the Greek language, they are different words. The word for love that Jesus used in verses 15 and 16 are the words agape. But the words that Peter used all three times and the word Jesus used the third time is the word phileo. And apparently these have different meanings. The theory is simple. That is that agape is an unconditional absolute form of love while phileo is a brotherly affection kind of love. And suddenly the sermon changes. It changes from Peter being offered the redemption from Jesus Christ and the opportunity to demonstrate his love to Christ to a condescension of Jesus. First, he mentions agape twice, realising that, ah, this unconditional love may not come from my subject, Peter. And then he condescends to saying, well, do you phileo me? Do you just love me with a brotherly kindness sort of love? And Peter says, yes, that's the love that I love you with, a brotherly kindness sort of love. Notice what's happened to the sermon? The sermon's changed. Suddenly it's changed. You thought you had what you needed, but now the Greek pastor teacher is telling you that you don't have it all. You need me. You need me. So if it's a rule, 
Can it be confirmed? If you go through the scriptures and you found out the word love and the word phileo and agape used in its context is uh, following that rule. In other words, agape is what? Unconditional absolute love, right? The love that's divine love, right? And phileo is what? A brotherly affectionate sort of love. Okay, turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're just going to stay in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. Now remember the rule. The rule that the Bible teacher in the Bible college and the pastor wants to tell you is that agape means unconditional love and phileo means a brotherly kindness sort of love. I just want to ask you just ahead of time, what sort of love do you think Jesus had for Lazarus? Agape love, yeah. I mean, he's the only one within the scripture that we see Jesus wept for. Jesus wept for Lazarus. You'd figure that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, would have nothing but an unconditional love. John 11, verse 2 to 3. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now remember, this was that Lazarus. What's the word there? Phileo. It's not agape. It's phileo. It's a brotherly kindness sort of love. Ah, I would have expected it would be a divine love. It's coming from Jesus. No, apparently it's the phileo love. Turn to John 16. John chapter 16 and verse 27. You've got it written there twice. It says there in John 16 verse 27, For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. What sort of love can the Father himself love you with? Agape love, yeah? If agape love means unconditional love, it would be that one. And the other love, because you have loved me, you should expect it would be agape, but we could, we could sort of say maybe not. Both are phileo. Both words that are behind the word love are phileo, not agape. Turn to John 20 verse 2. John 20 verse 2. John 20, verse 2. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre and we know not where they have laid him. The love that you would expect Jesus to love, that, that one disciple that Jesus loved would be an unconditional love. If agape meant unconditional love, if the word is not agape there either. It's again phileo. Five, John 5.20, this one you've got to turn to. John 5:20 John 5:20 It says there for the father loveth the son and showeth him all things that himself doeth and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel what sort of love can the Father God have for the Son, Jesus Christ? 
It should be agape love, if agape meant unconditional, absolute love. Yet the word is again phileo. Hang on, I thought this was a rule. You went through the effort of completely changing the message that I see within the Bible based on something that you were taught was a rule. Agape means unconditional love. Phileo means brotherly love. Yet I've got several passages here. Each one of them, I would assume, would have an unconditional love. Yet all of them say phileo. Now, just in case you're not completely convinced that these words are used interchangeably, I'm going to give you the reference for two others. You've got them in your notes, but it's Matthew 23, 6 and Luke eleven forty three. Let me read these for you, save you a little bit of time here. Matthew 23, 6. And now these are, these are similar accounts. One is Jesus preaching to the people. The other is Jesus dealing with the Pharisees directly, right? And love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. What sort of love could you expect them to love the uppermost seats with? An agape sort of love? A brotherly love? You know? Well, they would love it with some sort of an affection, you would think. You know, phileo. Well, the word there is phileo. So that's really good. Good. It's phileo. But the same passage, or the same... Now he's dealing with the Pharisees in Luke eleven forty three. He says, Woe unto you, Pharisees! For ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Guess what love is behind that word? Agape. Agape. Both of them speaking about them loving the seats in the synagogue. Both of them speaking about the same account. The only difference is Jesus is directing his attention to the people in the first and directing it to the Pharisees in the second. The first says phileo. The second says agape. What does that tell you? Agape and phileo are, what do we call it in English? Synonyms. They're synonyms for exactly the same thing. This is the norm in all languages. Different words do not always mean different things. They are what we call synonyms and every language has them. Every language has them. We've all got synonyms. You know, you know what bears out the synonyms? A thesaurus. You get a thesaurus. It's a book. It's a thesaurus. It's got, what's another word for thesaurus? Anyway. Sorry. Got to keep you awake sometimes just a little bit. But the interesting thing is, so too does the same word not always mean the same thing. Don't you, are you aware of that? The English language, you can have the same word with exactly the same spelling and it does not always mean the same thing. The context always bears out if you see bears in the woods or if you see how a man bears his burden. These things you need to bear in mind always. See what I did there? See that? Was that fun? Four different ways to use exactly the same word with exactly the same spelling. All four, there are different meaning to each one, of those, each one of those words. This is nothing unusual with language. Context, beloved. Context tells you what the word means. This is the first Greek class. 
Now let me conclude how the Greek class becomes a burden through which no certainty can ever be found. This may labour you, this may bore you, but I need to share this with you that you might understand how it's possible that we could be in a state that we're in today. I want you to understand that this complexity that I'm going to give you is deliberate and it remains just as confusing today in the debate long after the Greek student has concluded his studies. This explains perfectly why we've got 40 plus different Greek language dictionaries. If the purpose of studying the original language was to gain certainty and clarity, and clarity, you would only have, well, how many different Greek dictionaries would you have? One. Logical, isn't it? Not, not complicated. Really not complicated at all. The Greek class. After the student has sung his alphabet, he then studies... <laughs> Maria remembers that. He then studies the sounds of the letters in their different pronunciations. After this, they're shown the different letters that are used. Uncials and cursives, uppercase and lowercase. That's the last time I'm going to explain anything. Uncials are uppercase, cursives are lowercase. The Greek student learns that there are long and short vowels, muted, palatal, guttural consonants. They learn about breathing marks, accent marks, punctuation marks. We then learn about how to decline a noun. But before we get to that, we first need to understand what the inflection of a substantive is and where the declension comes from. In that, we determine the singular or plural or masculine or feminine and neuter pronouns. Then comes the case of the word, the nominative, possessive, objective, for both the singular and the plural. In Greek, we also look at the genitive and the dative. The genitive and the dative case, two cases, together with the accusative, depending on the ending of the noun. Some teachers have found more. Robertson's Greek grammar adds the ablative to the genitive, and both the locative and the instrumental to the dative. You following me so far? Doing well, doing well. We're then given verb conjunctions, which basically just changes the way words are spelt. Okay? I speak will, spell, will be spelt different to you speak or he speaks or they speak. It's actually not that unusual. In the Italian language, we've got exactly the same thing. The words change their spelling depending on whether it's, um, you know, well, we've got it in, in uh, say, um, do and does, for example. No, they mean two different things. So we get that. This isn't, so, this isn't too hard so far. The attacks on the Bible, however, haven't come in yet. At least not until your very limited understanding you discover that many plurals in the original language are translated as singular in the English. That's curious. The word Elohim in the Hebrew for God is a plural noun, yet it's always translated as the singular, God. Interesting. Why is that? Well, it's the same thing with the plural Uranos. Uranos means heaven, but it's also plural. Heavens. Some of the modern translations translated heavens. The King James never does. It's always heaven, singular. Why? Well, they, well if they finish messing with your head on that and don't give you an explanation, they just leave it hanging there as if there's an error within our Bibles. They move on. The present indicative active, the imperfect, the future first and second aorist, and the first and second perfect and pluperfect. 
These are all different things, different tenses that are being used to be able to understand the Greek language. The moods and voices are then considered. The indicative, the the imperative, the subjunctive, the opative. You then need to master the adjectival participles. Not one, but both the predicate and the attributive. Then supplementary participles as well as the circumstantial. You getting there? Are you following me along here? That's good fun. Now, just when you manage to get her at your head or above water, just to take your first bit of breath, because all this sort of stuff comes up, and then you've got your exam, right? You've got to know what these things are, and then you have your exam, and you've got to get a decent grade for it, but you don't want to forget it all, because what usually happens is once you learn all of this stuff, and I had to learn all of this stuff, guess what happened after the exam? Forgot it. (laughs) I just... I just forgot it. I had to remind myself of what these things were. This is what happens all the time. The first exam hasn't come yet, but before you need to distinguish the different forms of such as the genitive absolute and the Hebraistic intensifying participle, and that it's not to be outdone by the periphrastic conjunction as well as the accusative absolute. So you need to be able to have a good understanding of all of these things. And if you didn't think you were quite ready to be qualified to correct the Bible yet, then they have you memorise the entire 5,000 word vocabulary in the New Testament, the Greek New Testament. And that's just the basics. That's just the basics. But usually it only takes the first two years of Greek before you're so puffed up with this elite learning that you can correct the Bible at will. Now you're qualified, apparently. Now you're qualified. You can correct the Bible as much as you like now because i got Greek. I've got two years of Greek and that's all I need and I can correct the Word of God. One teacher notes that to be able to properly teach the Bible, you also need to gain understanding. I've tried practising how to say these things, so I'll give it a shot. You need to gain understanding of anacoluthons, aposiopesis, Ascindotons, spirants, syllabic augments, partitive genitives, paratactic conjunctions, itasisms, hyperbatons, or pleonasms. <laughs> now, I've actually looked up what they all mean, and they're, they're, they're not unreasonable things. I'm not saying that they're completely unreasonable. This is what I'm saying. Each one of those describe a form of speech, a particular form of speech that we might use, all right? Um, they might be a form of speech that, 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 that don't have something within it and they're known by a certain name. They, they give a name to these particular grammatical uh, statements within the, within the Bible and they give an overarching name. They're reasonable, nothing unreasonable about them. They all have something that they mean and they're, they're good and handy to know. But the natural effect of those things is one. They puff up the preacher. They puff up the preacher. They put the preacher in a position of elitism where when you see them with the letters DR before their name, you would somehow take them more seriously than the person who simply loves the book that speaks so plainly. So plainly. Having the doctor before your name doesn't actually mean that you know more 
about the word of God. These are potentially individuals who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And they take the word of God away from you. They take away your final authority, which you have in your laps, and they put it behind the pulpit. That without them, you can do nothing. Not without Jesus, without them. We wonder today why we don't get revivals. Maybe this is the reason. Satan remains content when we are willing to do more to confuse than to clarify, more to corrupt than to certify the word of the living God. The devil is very content. Beloved, you have the word of God. You've got it. If you've got an authorised version of the Bible, if you've got the King James version of the Bible, you have the very perfect word of God in your hands. Nothing needs to be changed. It is the book that every other version of the Bible compares itself to. Every other one. And as we go through this series, you'll have a good understanding on why. Why? It's the only book that blood has been spilt over in order to produce. The only one. Nothing ever came close to it. And it's the only one that seems to have this interesting division because you either love it or you hate it. There doesn't seem to be too many that are in between. You either love it or you hate it. Isn't that simple? Isn't that interesting concerning Jesus as well? We either love him or we hate him. You have everything you need. Your hands are God's perfect words. In here is the hope of eternal life. And not only the hope of eternal life, but the testimony of the life giver, Jesus Christ. Learn of him. Love him until he returns. Maranatha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work within our lives. We thank you for the book of God that we've been given. And we trust, dear Lord, that you have preserved it to us to this very day. Not that it's re-inspired, dear Lord, not in any state, but that it retains the inspirational qualities that were given from the very beginning as the words of God are given to us in such a form. I pray, dear Father, you would help us to grow in them, learn of them and believe them with all our heart, mind, soul and strength that we may love you with every ounce of our being. We praise you, Father, for it. I pray, dear Lord, you'll be with my brethren and encourage them greatly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.